Welcome everybody. Thank you once again for joining us on the Muslim Centric Podcast. I'm your host Amanda Rani. So this episode is another recording of a Desert Island Gem that I recorded in 2017. It's an in-depth and personal interview with a guest who is imagining if they were cast away to a desert island, what hadith, Quran, poetry, famous quotes would they take with them that would really be markers of their own life and it's a discussion about their own life stories. And today's guest is Sheikh Amr Jamil. So I recorded this in 2017 and we're re-releasing this in 2020 on this podcast. Uh, Sheikh Amr, if you're in the UK, many of you will have uh, come across him. So he's a scholar born and bred in Glasgow and he's the co-founder of an Islamic educational institute called iSyllabus UK. Uh, but Sheikh Amr is also known for his work as a scholar and family consultant with an organisation based in Glasgow called Unity Family Services. And they've been running for many years, dealing with uh, many issues to do with family breakdown, family relationships, marriage guidance. What's unique about them is that he can give very timely Islamic advice in these really difficult situations and along with the rest of the team um, so Sheikh Amr, I've known him from university actually and he's actually a very funny guy and it's a bit weird sometimes when you know people before they become scholars and sheikhs but he was uh, alhamdulillah a very down-to-earth and practical and approachable guy even at university and he completed his law degree and then he went abroad to study the Islamic sciences and was away for many many years and went to many countries the path of knowledge and he came back and has really benefited not just the Glasgow and Scottish society and community but really the whole of the UK and you'll find a lot of his talks and reminders online as well. In this uh, interview today that you're listening to we speak really from you know from the beginning of his life so early life at school and university getting a real insight into that and then talking about the path to scholarship and what were the critical moments in his life that turned things around perhaps taking quite an unconventional route, particularly in, in those years where it was not common for people to go and study the Islamic sciences. And, you know, especially when he had a promising uh, law career ahead of him. He discusses a lot of issues and lessons for us, particularly around the loss of his father. And I remember we had recorded a series of radio discussions at a local community radio station, Radio Ramadan in Glasgow, where we talk about the whole idea of death, and burials and dealing with all of that and very soon after that he you know he led the janazah for his own father so it was a, a very sort of touching and moving time Sheikh Amr has then gone on to deliver a number of courses across the UK talking about this whole discussion about death and burial but he also does marriage courses so he's very grassroots and connected to the community for this particular episode we also recorded it so if you want to watch this episode in the interview then I'll put the link in the episode notes if you wanted to catch up with that so really hope you enjoy this podcast and get some benefit from it if you're enjoying the podcast please do leave us a rating on the apple podcast store and also do subscribe and let other people know about the podcast so they can benefit as well we're on all the usual social media channels including facebook instagram and twitter and um, so please do just share and like and follow us and hope uh, you really benefit from this episode and speak to you soon inshallah you're listening to Desert Island Gems 
an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. Our guest today is Sheikh Amr Jamil. Born and brought up in Glasgow, Sheikh Amr is one of the co-founders of the iSyllabus Islamic Studies programme that has educated thousands of people across the UK over many years. He spent over a decade studying Islamic sciences in the UK, Syria and Yemen before returning back to Scotland and benefiting the community. Specialising in family law and working with Unity Family Services, Sheikh Amr has become one of the leading figures in the UK providing guidance and advice for those seeking help with the most complex of personal dilemmas, often including family relationship issues, domestic abuse, mental health issues and much more. He runs courses for those considering marriage and also for those who are seeking to improve their marriage. He is described as pragmatic and accessible and his extensive Islamic scholarship has been helped by his law degree from Strathclyde University. He is also a trained counsellor and NLP practitioner. So Sheikh Amr, Assalamu Alaikum and welcome. Wa Alaikum Assalam wa Rahmatullah wa Now we've known each other for many years and more recently the majority of your time is taken up educating others, particularly with the iSyllabus program. For those not familiar with the iSyllabus, what do you hope to achieve as an organisation? So Alhamdulillah, uh, as always, we always praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ultimately all success, all tawfiq comes from Him. Um, ultimately, when I came back from my studies abroad, long time abroad, over a decade, um, and Sheikh Rizwan had a similar experience to me, we, um, even during our studies, we were discussing about what we were going to do when we got back. And um, when we came back, there was a big thirst for knowledge. And when we spoke to people, most of them were saying, look, we want to study. We, want, we really want to get serious about our deen now. But there's nowhere we can really go that's accessible, especially for sisters, um, where we can have access to scholars who understand where we're coming from, have had similar experiences, you know, are going to give us pragmatic answers which make sense to our life today in 2009, it was that time, um, rather than something which works maybe if you're in a village in a different country. So um, we then asked people, you know, which, how, how would the format be? What, how much time can you commit? And we quickly realized that people are busy in their lives. Uh, they do want to learn, but they're not at the level that maybe we were that would actually go out and spend years and years. Most people um, with family life, personal life, could commit probably one evening a week. So we structured a course around their schedules and it was a one evening a week course for the duration of a year and it was there really to cover every aspect that they would face as a Muslim living in the West uh, and I think this is where it, it differentiates from other uh, courses, similar courses in the UK today a lot of courses will teach you the basics of praying, the basics of Ramadan, Zakat, um, basics of marriage or whatever you know, a little kind of flavour of Sirah and so on However, what we were trying to do were, was trying to contextualise that. So not only do we want to cover the same stuff, but how do I contextualise this? So many things in the seed I can tell you. I could spend a whole lesson telling you the lineage of the Prophet but is that really beneficial for you in your time that you're living in now? So we had to cherry pick from all the sciences 
the stuff we thought was most relevant to people of our generation. Having obviously been brought up here, gone through school, gone through university, um, had similar experiences to other people. We had a good idea of what the kind of questions that people would face. Alhamdulillah, we started that in 2009 in Glasgow. Um, and then the demand kept growing. We moved to Edinburgh. We've covered Aberdeen, Dundee in Scotland. In England, we've covered Bradford, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham. Inshallah, we're now hoping to go to London uh, in the forthcoming year. So the, the, the thirst and a drive is there for people. I think at that time, either you were a lay person or you were a scholar. There was nothing in between. And let's face it, how many people are going to become scholars? There's very, very few people. But I think with the talent that we have in the community, um, not everyone needs to be a scholar, but if we taught them up to a certain level, we could probably have so much productivity out of these people, maybe even more than a scholar sometimes. Think of the people that um, inspired us, someone like Ahmed Dida. He wasn't a scholar, scholar. He was just a, sp a specialist in... Islam and Christianity, but look at the impact he had. And there's other people like that who weren't fully blown scholars, but had a lot of impact. So in terms of having impact doesn't necessarily mean it's the person with the most knowledge. If we give enough knowledge to the right people, I think we can um, you know, have a massive impact in their own personal lives, in their family life, but also on, on a society level. And if we can get our community contributing more to not only just the Muslim community, but the wider society, um, then that is going to be beneficial for everybody. Now, you know, you're 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 a doctor. You're going to mix with people. I'm never going to mix with. You're going to have access to people. I'm never going to have access to. You're going to have conversations. I will never be a part of them. So, if I give that knowledge to you or give you enough knowledge, then I know that that will be passed on to other people, other circles which I would never get access to. And for you, you're a Muslim. You know, you are a doctor, of course, but part and parcel of your identity is your Islam. People will see that. People are going to ask you about, oh, you're a Muslim. Your name's Aman Allah. Uh, you seem to be practicing, you pray. What does Islam say about this? Oh, I saw this in the news the other day. And is this true? Is this is what your religion saying? So you have to have enough knowledge that you can navigate your life. Your children are growing up in the society. They're going to come to you and ask you questions. Dad, I was taught in school today that you know we we come from from uh, from apes, but in Madrasa they're saying that Adam was the first human being. What's the situation? You have to have enough knowledge that you can um, educate your own children, and your obviously family members, um, colleagues at work, non-Muslims. So in every aspect of life, you are a person of da'wah. This ummah, the Prophet's ummah, is the ummah of da'wah. He's the last prophet, no other prophets are going to come after that. And the responsibility of Dawah is on our shoulders. If we don't know our own faith, how can we expect anyone else to know anything about it? And so the starting point of one of your courses, the diploma level, mm -hmm. the idea is that it's supposed to teach people the minimum that they need to know about worshipping and practicing their faith. Has it surprised you over the years about how much limited knowledge there is amongst some people and amongst the community, even in terms of the, these basics? I think, um, worryingly, yes. Um, and I think what happens is when you're so engrossed in a subject, there's certain things which are givens and you just 
assume that everybody knows this and you think it's too basic to even mention it, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Over, over time after having um, been delivering talks and lectures and classes in different forums, I've realized that you should never assume things, you know, you always cover the basics because there's going to be somebody that doesn't understand or doesn't know or maybe has partial understanding or misinformation. A lot of the times, you know, we've got culture mixed up with religion. And so there's a lot of um, unpeeling that we have to do so that people understand, oh, actually, this is culture, this is religion. What my mom said was 80% fine, but there's 20%, which was, was actually incorrect. And so I think um, uh, when you do speak to people, sometimes it's actually shocking the level of our education. And this is a failure, I think, when you have a person who's a doctor in society or um, a lawyer, somebody who's you know got impact in society, knows their field very well, but when it comes to his own profit or her own profit, doesn't know you know whose wives were, uh, doesn't know who his children were, um, doesn't know certain. You, you mentioned a prophet's name. Who's that? And you're like, it's a prophet of Allah. Like you know, all the things you know in your life, you don't even know this you know essential thing. Our, our, you know, we're exposed to so much information in our in our age. It's the age of information, isn't it? Um, we know so much information, but a lot of it is not beneficial. I might know Beckham's, you know, record on whatever it is, or I might know he's married to Posh Spice, and his kids are X Y Z. Yeah, I don't know the Prophet's Sallam's wife. I don't know his children's names. That that's a that's a, a tragedy where I can know details of somebody who I'm not even connected to. I, I'm not, I don't even f share the same faith. Um, they might not believe in my prophet. They might not believe in God. I know more about them than my own prophet, who's my role model in life, supposed to be my role model in life. Somebody I'm supposed to love more than anyone after God, yet I don't know him. Now, often people don't see the hours, months and years of uh, research and preparation that comes into delivering these courses and also the thousands of miles that you spend traveling and teaching um, and that can be very draining. Have there, are there any examples you can think of of students where it has benefited people and it makes it all worthwhile? Knowledge is light so there's a certain light in this uh, tradition that we're carrying and so we talk about something called um, the, the sanad or the chain of transmission so the traditional system would have been that, you know, you're my teacher, you would have taught me, I would have taught, I would have had my students taught them. So there's a chain that connects all of us. So the traditional system is that whatever you've been studying, whatever science it is, you have a chain of transmission that takes you back to the original source. So in hadith, you would have a chain all the way back to Imam Bukhari. And Imam Bukhari then got his chain back to the Prophet Sallallahu So in this way, there's this, there's this light that's been transmitted through this knowledge. So this is why when you're sitting in a class and you're discussing um, Islamic studies, there's a certain feeling that you come away with in that class. Your, your, your soul is uplifted. You feel nourished spiritually. And so that uh, people have consistently said to me, you know, at the end of the course, I don't know what I'm going to do because you know, my weekly, as has been described as a weekly Iman boost, you know, it's coming to an end and I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of, the, the, rest of the, 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 the summer because every week I knew this was the thing that was going to keep me going. It would give me inspiration. It would feel great. And it's come to an end what I do now. 
And so um, there are individual cases where people have said to me, I remember one sister said very uh, early on that she didn't pray before doing the course. And she said at the end of the course, she was praying five times a day. So Alhamdulillah, you know, that's something that, that gives you a lot of satisfaction that you've got somebody closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another person I remember said to me that he was at uh, a ta'zia or afsos or you know um, condolences when someone passes away and somebody was saying something about hadith being made up and he said having done the course I remembered the module on hadith studies and I said actually uncle it's not like that it's like this 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 and there is evidence that it was written and um, the, the man went silent then he said something else and then he goes I remembered something from the Tuskia module about having a good opinion and it's a disease of the heart to keep criticizing and I mentioned that he goes then again the person went quiet and didn't speak again the point he was trying to make to me was had I not interjected this person would have influenced other people who are listening to him attentively and it was misinformation getting passed on and he just felt empowered that you know I had the ability I'm not a scholar but I had the ability to stop a potential uh, fitna happening to other people other people's religion you know being affected by this person so he was so happy that he phoned me up he said Sheikh I just want to tell you this happened and you know it was because I had the knowledge you know to say it and, and had I not had that I wouldn't have the confidence to say anything I would I would maybe maybe I would have got confused myself so he just appreciated um, the impact and many people like that you know the, there's people who have said I've had problems with my family for years and years and I was having a conversation with my sister the other day and she said, you know, I've seen that you've changed over this year and you've become a warmer person, a better person. And I realise it's it's I syllabus that's 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 changed you as a person. And now I believe that you're the person that's going to resolve our family issues. So people, you know, out of happiness they will email us in and discuss this. One I remember off the top of my head was a Tunisian sister who's from a Muslim country came here to do her PhD in Edinburgh, but she was so impacted by Isilabus, she said that, you know, I'm from a Muslim country and I didn't have the opportunity to access this knowledge there. And I had to come to Edinburgh to have this opportunity. And, you know, you're just like, wow, subhanAllah, you know, in a Muslim country, you didn't have this access. You didn't have the, the, the ability to, to get this knowledge, but you got it here. So Alhamdulillah, you know, it's been, uh, it's one of the things that really, uh, gives you a lot of job satisfaction, you could say, that, you know, um, when you do this, and, and it, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, obviously it's difficult, you have to travel a lot, you're away from your family, there is a lot of prep, there's a lot of time that goes into organising these things, but when you get emails like that, it makes it all worthwhile, alhamdulillah. So we're going to cast you away on this desert island, um, and you're going to take some of these um, items with you, so let's hear about the first item that you've chosen that you're going to take along with you to this desert island. Um, so, obviously the, the, the Qur'an is the, the book of Allah, it's um, the truth, it's Allah's word, we all believe it's 100% the truth, it comes from our Creator Himself. So, the first is a verse of the Qur'an, and it's from the chapter of light, Surah Nur, chapter 24. Um, when I was initially studying Arabic, um, I was improving my tajweed, my, the, way, the art of recitation, and Alhamdulillah, as I progressed and it became a lot better, one of the, the earliest uh, verse or earliest um, chapters I memorized was the this chapter, Surah Nur. 
and um, there's a verse Allahu nuru samawati wal ard Allahu nuru samawati wal ard مثل نوره كمشكات فيها مصباح المصباح في زجاجة الزجاجة كأنها كوكب دري يوقد من شجرة مباركة يوقد من شجرة مباركة زيتونة لا شرقية ولا غربية يكاد زيتها يضيء يكاد زيتها يضيء ولو لم تمسسه نار نور على نور يهدي الله لنوره من يشاء ويضرب الله الأمثال للناس والله بكل شيء عليم الله سبحانه وتعالى uh, literally would say is the light of the heavens of the earth but it's, it's Allah's not created um, so the, the scholars of tafsir says Allah is the source of the light of the of the air of the, the heavens and the earth um and so that's that that verse has always struck a chord with me um and i think it's a reminder of the fact that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um you know everything uh, that leads to allah subhanahu wa is light so you have light and you have darkness so when you think of difficult times in your life it's a moment of darkness you feel in the dark and darkness is actually just the absence of light. So when you have light, the darkness dissipates. And so if we had light in our lives, you know, the darkness would dissipate. So whatever darkness it is, it will dissipate when there's light. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, everything connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a light. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was a guiding light. Um, the ulama are our light when you see somebody who's very quote-unquote pious I mean, we can't judge piety because piety is something in the heart but you know we see a person as they say uh you know on his face is uh, uh, salah you know in, in his face there's a kind of um, righteousness you see these people who uh you feel you know uh, closer to allah being the company what will people say? The, the person's got noor on his face. He's got light on his face. Yeah. So there's a certain um, illumination, a physical illumination, is a metaphorical illumination. So ultimately, everything that we're seeking is uh, is is the light, is the light from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, um, is the light of the Prophet It's the light of these these men men of Allah. It's the light that we gain from the Quran, the light we gain from the Sunnah, the light we gain from all this beneficial knowledge. Um, so this verse always reminds me of the importance of of divine light. And during some of your journeys, have there been any particular scholars or imams that have particularly had a significant impact on you in terms of you talking about light from people in Noor? Um, are there any scholars or individuals that you feel have had a big impact on you. Yeah, um, some of my personal teachers, who um, I, I think I just I just saw their lives 
and just saw so much dedication. Um, their whole life revolved around God, revolved around knowledge, revolved around benefiting other people, lives of sacrifice, um, doing without much of the world. So there, you know, the other thing, the things that people are interested in, the, the, the car you drive, the house you live in, the clothes you wear. These people were just like, this is just irrelevant. And being in their company, you know, you become, you, you start to take on those attributes. I mean, the reason one of the, the reasons the Sahaba are such great people is because they spent company, they spent, they, they spent time in the company of the, of the greatest of all people. And so some of the, the, the characteristics of the Prophet they adopted. And similarly, when you're with these people, you start to adopt, you see how they are with other people, you see how they're with their wife, their children, and you start to be, try to emulate them. So um, some of these people were just phenomenal. You know, they would spend from day to night just benefiting, benefiting. It was just like giving, 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 giving of themselves all the time. Um, before actually studying, one of, the, one of the people had a big impact on me. And I think a lot of people at that time, back in the 90s, was Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. And I think um, the reason he had such an impact, he was so articulate. Um, it was the one of the few scholars who could relate the Islamic science, the teachings of Quran Sunnah to Western life, and he'd quote Western books and he'd show the correlation, um, and he'd show how Islam is, you know, uh, um, the truth. Um, and again, you look at him and you think this person was born Muslim. I'm a born Muslim. He actually chose this. He became a he, he um, adopted this faith. And look at how much in such a short period he knows. And so it almost put you to shame in a sense that, you know, we're born Muslims and we don't know about religion. This person just become Muslim in a few years. Seems to like have so much endless knowledge. So I attended a, a summer course with him, the Rihla course. It's very famous now, but that was the very first one, 1996. And I was only 19 at the time. Young guy, uh, Sheikh Hamza was in his late 30s, you know, some 20 years older. But it's so inspirational and um, you could see the benefit he was having and I think that was the first time I, I thought of a scholar as a role model that I would actually like to be like him. I didn't get this feeling from the local imam, I didn't get this feeling from other uh, scholars. It wasn't somebody I looked at and thought, yeah, I want to be like him. But I think that was the first time in my life, a scholar I looked at and thought, yeah, I could, I, I could, I could see, foresee myself being like somebody like him who can benefit so many people. So let me take you back a little bit to a young boy growing up in Glasgow. Can you paint us a picture of what life was like growing up? What are your sort of early memories? Um, so I think mm, I had just an average life with, with like most people. I wasn't particularly from a religious family. No one really prayed. Uh, none of the women really wore hijab. Um, yeah, in Ramadan we'd fast. You'd make an effort for Tarawih prayers. You'd go for... Juman now and again, you'd go for the Eid prayer. Um, you learnt the basics of Quran and Madrasa, but that was about it. Most of it was going to school, um, you know, playing a lot, uh, doing sports, you know, all the kind of stuff that other people was doing were, were, were was really doing at that time. Uh, I lived in a predominantly non-Muslim area, um, so I was a bit of a minority at school. Probably one of the two few Asians. So, the usual, at uh, that time, you'd face racism, uh, 
I think the society's gone a long way now. It was a lot more tolerant of racism then than it is now. Um, my dad, you know, as a businessman, you know, you'd go to the the shop, the the restaurant, go in, and you'd help out. In my teenage years, I would I would help out, work on the weekends, um, typical stuff that really any other teenager do: play cricket, play football, uh, that kind of stuff. And you mentioned racism. I mean, are there particular instances that you remember of experiencing racism growing up? I think it was just a regular occurrence. It was just a regular occurrence, just taunts, verbal insults. Um, it was just a constant. Would, this, would this be at school or at yeah, home? Yeah, at school. At school. And how did you deal with On that? On the streets as well. I think you just um, you learn to stand up for yourself. So it was very much... Um, if you showed weakness, you'd be trampled on, and so you had to get into some fights. Um, you know, you'd have to show that you could take care of yourself, that you were not going to be a pushover, because if you showed that, then people would, it would, it would just only increase. And I guess growing up as well, particularly during adolescence, there's whole issues about identity and your journey that you're going through. Did you ever feel some of that real pull in these different directions about? Being from Glasgow, being South Asian, being a Muslim, did you do you remember some of these sort of um, internal struggles at the time? Of course, of course. Like um, like most people, you know, as a young child, even though I wasn't from a predominantly religious family, but you know, certain things you didn't do, like eat haram, um, meat. So, you know, your dietary uh, practice was different from all the other kids at school. Certain things that you did um, or didn't do. So, for example, you know, I remember kids used to. I remember in school we were were told, draw your favourite dish. You have a a restaurant. I'd never been to a restaurant in my life, because that wasn't the culture at that time. Um, whereas non-Muslim kids, they used to go out to eat, so they were all drawing stuff. So I had to um, pretend. Uh, you know, I had to kind of imagine or just make up something on the spot. So I remember drawing a curry uh, and I tried to think of what what does a curry look like in a restaurant and I just made it up, you know. So um, we didn't have that culture of going out. We didn't used to go on holidays. Our concept of going holidays was one day in Butlins or one day at Alton Towers when 50 people from your family would go down in a couple of uh, vans for the day. And that was considered to be a holiday, you know. So it wasn't like going abroad for a couple of weeks. The culture's changed now. But I'm talking about then. We didn't really go out for, for to eat out. Again, that um, kind of developed maybe in my teenage years. But as a child, we didn't really kind of do that. We would um, go visiting, you know, uh, other families and things like that. But in terms of what other people would do, in terms of going holidays, going out to eat, that kind of culture was very different for us. And when you were in school, were you quite a quiet person? Are you quite loud and sociable? Or because uh, I guess now, you know, you speak in front of thousands of people and stuff. Have you always been quite confident and quite outgoing? Um, I, I would say uh, I've always been a quite a social and jovial kind of person. Um, I do like to have a laugh. I do like my jokes. Uh, as a child. You know, it was a bit of both. Um, there was that um, feeling of being a minority. I, I think as I got older, 
went to high school that came out a bit, a bit more my personality came out a bit more I was quite sociable I was always playing sports I was good at sports alhamdulillah whether I did basketball, football, rugby, cricket so I was always involved in gymnastics I was always involved in um, the, the school activities uh, in class I did mess about you know in classes of a class joker you know up to you know pranks and things like that but I did you know participate with the uh, with the teacher I wasn't I wasn't one of the quiet shy ones the shy quiet ones and you went on to study law tell us about why you chose that and what, what was it were you also on that trajectory to become mm, a lawyer I think um, it's very difficult when you're when you're making a decision of what you want to do for the rest of your life at age of 16 you know how many people do really do really do know what they want at that age? I, I question. I question that. Um, I was at school. I wasn't the most intelligent, but I was well above average. Um, had decent grades. Your your parents obviously have high expectations of you. One of my brothers had done accountancy. My other brother had done electrical and electronic engineering. My sister had become a doctor, it was doing medicine. My mother sister was doing IT. So there's an expectation that you need to do something. Um, and I think it was more to do with what my family wanted from me rather than me. I don't, I don't think I really knew what I wanted, but I was kind of pushed towards law. Had the grades and therefore I went into, I thought it's a decent career. Everyone seemed to say, yeah, you know, you can't really go wrong with it. And what are your memories of university days? University days, uh, alhamdulillah, I went to Strathclyde University. Um, university was good. Uh, I, I enjoyed myself. Didn't study as hard as I should have, uh, like many people that go to university. I think you've come from a, a culture where it's very quite controlled. Your parents are always, you know, on your case. You go to university, you know, and you're on your own. Your parents think you're at, the parents, because they've never been to university themselves, they think all you do is study from the morning to night. It's very easy to just tell me I'm in the library, I'm doing this and that. Yeah, I was in the library, I was messing about, and, you know, socialising with my friends. But, um, you know, you do have that scope of, you're a bit older, your parents trust you a bit more, you got grant, you got a bit of money, you know, so you did um, tend to socialise and, and, and uh, spend money going out, eating, all this kind of stuff. Um, I did get involved in some societies. Uh, I ended up running the cricket club with my friend. Um, so, yeah, it was it was good. I enjoyed it. Uh, met a lot of people, different um, from different countries, uh, different age groups. Because at school you're on with the same age group. University, you're now you got older students. You got people who are different ages. So you learn a lot more about life. You're a lot more exchange going on. They're asking you stuff. You're asking them stuff. You're learning a lot of life skills uh, from other people. You're getting involved in different projects. There was a lot of Dawa projects that were going on at that time as well. Getting involved, involved in Radio Ramadan. I remember that happened during, during university. So you try, you know, different things. You're sampling life. You're you're exp having different experiences. And were you becoming more religiously aware and conscious about faith and religion at that time, or had it been started before university? I think what what happened was in high school, being a very sociable person, being in the rugby team, uh, you know, mixing with cool guys, you could say. What happens around about the third or fourth year is that 
uh, obviously for non-Muslims, they start going out more. Um, they start drying drink. They start having um, girlfriends, relationships. And at that point, one thing I was quite strict on was, I might have done a lot of things, but one thing I wasn't going to do was alcohol. I was quite strict about that. So there, there, there is this kind of barrier straight away because one of their main, uh, you know, um, aspects of their life is is revolves around drink, and one of the things that we're quite strict on is that we don't drink. So I think at that point there was not not a religious identity, but a kind of cultural uh, realization that I am different. I have a different lifestyle from these people, but I still had still great friends. So they talk about on the Monday what they did and they got drunk and they got leathered you know, smashed, all this kind of stuff. Whereas on the weekend, I'd been at the restaurant, helped my dad. Um, so I think it happened at that point where you start to feel different. And I remember I'm in a predominantly non-Muslim, um, white, middle-class kind of school. So you, your, your colour is different, your religion's different, your culture's different. So you do feel this, you know, that I am, I am I'm different. And that, that, that takes you on your own journey of, who am I? What is my identity? As I went to university, I had I got a lot more Asian friends, a lot more Muslim friends, uh, who are a bit more like me. Uh, so you're a bit more comfortable in who you are. But for me, the 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 journey kept continuing, and again, I still wasn't outwardly practicing at this point. But because you're mixing with so many different types of people. They're asking you questions, you're asking yourself questions. Um, you just start questioning your identity. Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? And so I was starting to buy books on this kind of topic and exploring religion, I think, a lot more. And did the Islamic society have an influence or a role to play for you? Islamic society, I just joined, like in so many other societies I was joining at that time, just to try things out. Um, so at least I found out where the Juma was. I found out where I could, you know... Um, get some halal burgers. <laughs> so at that time, they the, the, they got a prayer room that year when I was there. I didn't really use it apart from Ramadan. But then, you know, it got to a point where, because other other people I knew would pray, I would just go along and pray with them. And so, uh, I slowly, slowly got into the whole uh, Islamic society from that perspective. Then during about second year of my course is when I did that one month course with Sheikh Hamza, which really, I think, changed my trajectory in life. At that point, I was still going to be a lawyer. I think at that point, I stood back and started to really reflect on what I wanted to do. One of the things I remember Sheikh Hamza said that, you know, we've got, we've got lots of doctors, we've got lots of lawyers, and okay, what is the impact? What is their output? What is um, the footprint that they're going to leave behind for the next generations. And he said one of the things we're missing is scholars, scholars who are born, brought up in the West, who understand the West and who can take Islam to the West. And uh, then, you know, he kind of asked us that, that, put it out there. And we, a lot of us that were actually on that course, went off to study after that. At that point, I was just kind of thinking, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I was looking, I think university for me was a time of reflection as well. I was looking at what's happening in society. Uh, I was looking at our generation, how many of them 
you know, identified, identified as Muslim. How many of them were engaged in non-Islamic practices? And I was thinking about the future. I thought, well, going forward, generations in the future, will we remain Muslim? Will this get passed on? Or is it just going to be a cultural thing that will fizzle out with time? So all these things were going on in my mind at that time. So take us to your next item that you're going to take along with you on this desert island. Um, so uh, there's a, a quote from Muhammad Iqbal, who is the Indian subcontinent poet um, from about 100 years ago now. And um, I read a book when I was, I'd, I'd finished my degree and I was doing Arabic at that time. So it's the beginning of my Islamic studies. I was still not sure how long I was going to study for. And I was reading some of the stories of the greats of the past, the, the Muslim heroes or uh, significant historical figures in Islamic history and what contributions they had made. Uh, I guess that was part of the inspiration, you know, that these people came and they lived in this world and they'd and they done something. And look at the, 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 the influence they've had. And so many people have come and gone in life and, you know, they, they haven't done anything apart from eat, drink, sleep, procreate, and that's it. Um, so in Muhammad Iqbal, I find very inspirational in terms of where he started and how he ended up and the contribution he made. And, you know, these are poems that you still hear today in Juma Khutbas. People still quote him and he's been dead, you know, for over 70, 80 years. Um, so uh, he was writing at a time where the Muslim majority of the Muslim lands were under colonial room. So he's looking at the end of the twentieth century, the beginning of the end of the nineteenth century, and the beginning of twentieth century. Around that time, it's quite a, it's a bit of a low point for the Muslim Ummah. He's again reflecting, and I was in that reflective state as well. He's reflecting on what's happening, what's the solution, where's it all gone wrong. Um, and there's a, a poem that I read and I underlined it and he says let us live in the world like a lamp we should burn ourselves but illuminate the way for others and this um, for me uh, connected to me to an earlier memory and that earlier memory was of my my Thaya which is my my father's older brother um, and I always saw him like a grandfather figure. I was 10 years old when he passed away. And he was the first person in my family. It was the first death experience I had had. He actually passed away before my grandfather. And um, significantly older than my father. So I saw him as my, my kind of grandfather figure. And he had uh, always said to us that everyone can live for themselves. Anyone can live for themselves. Right, and just think about themselves. But a real man or a real person is one who lives for other people. In other words, to sacrifice your own desire for the sake of other people, altruism, preferring others before yourself. And that's obviously a, 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 a Muslim uh, prophetic characteristic. But at the time, I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I'm just a, a child from my early teens. But this quote from Muhammad Iqbal took me back to that, that, you know, it's about anyone can live for themselves, but you will not only achieve benefit for yourself and no one else. But if you really want to do something in the, with this life, this one chance at life that you've got, you know, time will not come back. This moment will not come back. Uh, we're all going to leave. Muhammad Iqbal came, gone. My Taya 
great man came gone and i'm going to come and go next generation will come they'll come everyone's going to come and go but what is it i'm going to do with this life what's one life i've got and so this idea of um not just living yourself for your living your life for yourself but actually sacrificing the prophet came he sacrificed the sahaba came they sacrificed their lives for this religion for their creator and so i wanted to to follow in that that kind of footstep as well now many years ago we um did a radio show on radio ramadan and we talked about these elements in life and one of them we talked in quite in depth about death and bereavement as one of the issues for people to face and obviously a very difficult time in one's life um, and soon after we did that program your father became unwell and he passed away mm -hmm. may Allah granted him the highest status in Jannah inshallah and if I remember correctly you led, led his janazah as well can you describe a little bit about what that time was like because obviously he, he was a very significant figure for you um, can you tell us a bit about what that time was like yeah, so my my father, I passed. My father passed away when I was thirty. I'm the youngest uh, of my family, and it was about eight years into my studies abroad. So for the last eight years of my adult life, uh, at that point, you know, I had not been with my father, and I think this is one of the sacrifices you make. You go out, you leave your family behind. It's a sacrifice for your family as well, because he never saw his youngest son for eight years. For the last eight years of his life. But he knew that it was significant, he knew it was important. And so that's a sacrifice from his aspect, it's a sacrifice from my aspect. Um, but I think with with um his passing away, you know, your father is the is is the central rock, you could say, in your life. He's that stable figure that your unshakable figure that you can turn to is reliable, he's your provider. And my dad was quite a, a, a kind of alpha male in that sense. He was quite a strong person. Um, he was like an anchor. And my father had a, a, an interesting relationship with him. He he um, was a kind of sociable person, a people's person. And he used to always talk to me when we were in the car, we were driving, he'd talk. And he asked me certain things. And so when he passed away, since he's passed away, even till today, I still remember things that have stuck with me that he said and with as you get older with the life experience you're like my dad was right you know at the time you say oh, hey, your dad here he goes again but now with life as life transpires you realize actually it was wisdom he was passing on it was life experience he was passing on and so um as somebody now who deals with so many people's problems sometimes i actually think of oh, my dad actually said that this was going to happen and this was you know so um it does make you appreciate him a lot more than maybe when you're very young. Um, and I think at that point where that figure is gone now in your life, you realize I've got to stand on, on two feet now. I'm on my own in a sense. I've got to be um, um, a man in my own right. Alhamdulillah, it gave me gave great comfort to lead his janazah prayer because he always said, if I pass away, I want you to lead my janazah prayer. At that time, very uncommon for other than the imam to lead the prayer the janazah prayer um, however being a student of knowledge i had enough knowledge i was allowed to lead the prayer and um i then went to the, the burial place and i made a, a dua now this is this was you know not just an imam's employed to do that so he's going to make a dua for you for whoever it is but when it's your own father 
the person that's looked after your entire life in that grave, you know, the du'a that comes out comes from your heart. And it was just the overwhelming emotion that came out, I think, that the people that were there, about 150 people, they were all crying. Because for them, it was a son pleading with God for forgiveness for his father. And I remember after that, straight after my mamu said that, um, Banja, he goes like my nephew, he goes, you're going to lead my janazah prayer. <laughs> because I want, I want that kind of dua at my burial. And I think that was significant because my brother said to me, he goes, you don't realize the impact of today, of that day. I said, what is the impact? He said, because when I went out in the path of knowledge, a lot of people thought I was making the wrong decision. You know, I had, a, I had a promising lawyer career in front of me, lots of money, lots of status in society, uh, lots of respect. Yet, in people's eyes, and I came from a reasonably well-off family. My um, relatives were all businessmen, motivated by business, profit, and so on. They could not understand, why do you want to leave that and become an imam? You have to study for X for so long, so many years, X years, and then you come back and you're going to get paid like peanuts, absolute peanuts in a mosque. And people will tell you what to do, committee members, and if they don't like you, they'll get rid of you, and you just, you know, you can't give your, your children a good start in life. Why do you want to throw all that away? So there was a lot of pressure on me from family, from friends, from community, um, throughout my studies, that I was making the wrong decision, that I was, I, I'd, I'd, you know, made a bad decision and I'm going to find out in the future. You know, like we're going to basically say, we told you so. We told you not to do it. You didn't listen to us. And this is what happens. That day when I, that, when I led the, the prayer and I buried my father and made that dua, my brother said, the reason you've had an impact is because they've just realized that the, the, the only reason you were able to do that is because of your studies. And he said, how many of their sons, they might be lawyers, might be doctors, might be accountants. How many of their sons will be able to do that for them when they leave this world? So he basically said, you don't realize what's happening, but a lot of people are talking. And do you think leading the janazah and the burial, was that, did that make things easier for you or harder for you to deal with the grief? I think it made it easier because I thought it was my dad's last wish and that this happened and I was fortunate enough to, to do that. I wasn't there for... The last few years of his life I didn't uh, have the opportunity to serve him but I was able to fulfill his wish and I know I knew that he'd be happy that this, that this has happened. And do you think that's very similar for other people that go abroad particularly to study knowledge is there always that worry that what if something happens to our family while we're away like you know alhamdulillah you're able you're back at that time and obviously timings in Allah's hands but is there always that anxiety in these students of knowledge that you know I'm away from it's not what six months it's a years and years yeah yeah there is that feeling because when I was there some people did their parents did pass away and they weren't there for that um, and they had to wait because they didn't have the money they had to wait for a certain period before they could go home so I can just imagine how difficult that would have been for them my father I knew wasn't well He'd said to me, look, I'm, I'm going to need a triple heart bypass. So I knew that anything could happen at any time. I think I was just happy that when it did happen, I was actually there. I had the ability to lead the prayer because he'd said to me on a number of occasions, I want you to lead my prayer. I want you to lead my prayer. 
and had he supported you, I guess, this big change from, you know, f uh, potentially being a lawyer to, you know, starting to spend more Islam? Because you were one of the early generation of um, students who went abroad from Scotland or from the UK, you know. So yeah, was I, it a, there wasn't a precedent. Yeah, I think, I think what you find at that time was the people who did go and become scholars were already from a scholarly family who maybe their dad was an imam or the uncle was an imam so there was that kind of uh, encouragement towards that you know like you get families where the father's a doctor the mother's a doctor then obviously they get pushed into medicine or the businessmen so they push them into business so it's almost like the family trade i wasn't from that i was from a predominantly business background not hugely practicing so for 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 them it was a quite extreme thing i mean i was the first one to have a beard in my family that in itself was extreme i was only 19 why have you got a beard you know you can have a cube of beard when you're older why are you why are you praying you know why are you doing all these things you're getting a bit extreme here you know so the, um in the initial period my father thought that i'd just been influenced by quote-unquote extremists <laughs> you know or the religious lot who are you know just telling people forget the world and just go off and, and, and live a, as a monk so i think he was um thinking my my my, my, my young son he's just impressionable he's listened to these people he's got carried away and he's following them so a lot of he spoke to a lot of people to speak to me so knock some sense into me and a lot of people tried to convince me not to do this i think what really saddened me was people who i thought would support me didn't so people who were um islamically active in the community doing a lot of islamic projects they themselves were trying to put me off by saying what well, you know you should become a lawyer you shouldn't do it because you shouldn't become an imam and i, I found that very disheartening um and i think i realized that they were quite short-sighted and they couldn't see the value of this so the initial period was i think very difficult um and because it was my choice it's very difficult for me to say okay i want to do this and you need to fund me you know, so it was my decision and I felt, well, it's my decision. I need to fund myself now. I need to show that I've made the right decision. So I used to work in the summers, um, which was, I think, useful because it gives you um, experience of what it's like to work in the world. Maybe some of the imams have never had that kind of job. And I think that's maybe uh, part of the disconnection that some of them have with the real world. So that was useful from that perspective. Um, I had a number of jobs during the summers, different companies. Um, and this is all pre-9-11, remember. A couple of years into my studies, 9-11 happened. I was in the city at the time. That was a game changer for the Muslim community. Um, what non-Muslim community was asking questions. We had to provide spokespeople who could speak up. Who was going to speak up for us? We, 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 you know, it was only younger people who were articulate in the English language who could actually speak any sense when it came to the media and so on. I think after that period, when my dad saw that I'm determined, he saw that I'm not going to listen, I'm going to keep going. And also, I think post 9-11, he realised, actually, my son is the type of person who will now be able to explain Islam to this community. It's not going to be the imams from abroad. I think that's where his perspective changed. He saw what I could see or he, he he saw value in what I was doing and I remember maybe a couple of years after that he said look okay I told you not to do this you didn't listen to me um, 
you want you, you you seem to be quite determined you want to do this and he said now that you've made that decision he said make sure you're, you're successful at it in other words you've made this decision now do it to the best of your ability do you think he'd be proud of you for what you've achieved i think so i think um he to, even towards the end of before he passed away he he saw me in one of the mosques near khutbah um, so I think he was he was proud that you know yeah my son's you know benefiting because at the end of the day you, your your parents are concerned for you they want you to have they don't want you to have the struggles they had you know they went through difficult times in their childhood poverty they came to a new country they built a future for themselves they didn't have education they gave you education they want ultimately what is best for you but I think once he saw my son will be okay he'll get through life um, and. You know, he's, you know, people are listening to him and he's benefiting people. I think that gave him a degree of, of peace. So, Sheikh Amr, tell us about the next item you're going to take with you to the desert island. Next item is a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Obviously, there's so many to choose from, but there's one that always resonates with me. And uh, I just think it's phenomenal hadith. And it's the hadith that says, Ajaban li amr al-mu'min. Amazing or um, astonishing is the affair of the believer. Indeed, all of his affair is good. Inna amrahu kullaluhu khair. Everything, everything's always good, and it's for nobody except a believer. So something that's only Allah gives to a person who who believes. And it says, if something good happens, either asarat sarra, something good happens, happy times. It's he's thankful for it, so something good happens, you're grateful for it, and that's good for him. And if something difficult happens, hardship, difficulties in life, calamities, he's patient, and that's also good for him. So, whether it's good times or bad times, it's always good. Good times, you're thankful, Allah rewards you. Uh, bad times, you're patient, Allah rewards you. So, in both situation, both situations, it's it's a reward, it's positive. There's there's actually no negativity there's actually nothing um, no harm no uh, low point at all now can you think of times when you've found life a real struggle and things have been really challenging for you yeah so i think that that hadith is always something that you go to when you're maybe not feeling so good um you're feeling a bit overwhelmed or life's getting too much for you and when you come to that that hadith it makes you realize that look it doesn't matter you know everything's good at the end of the day Inshallah, everything's everything's a positive. So that has really helped me in times of difficulty. Um, for me, I would say the majority of the difficulties I faced was during my studies. It wasn't an easy process. Like I said before, um, you're up against your own family, up against your friends, up against your own community. People involved in Islamic work were against you. Um, so many obstacles. People question you all the time, what are you going to do when you come back? How are you going to earn a living? How are you going to support your family? Um, really making you think about all these things. Having gone out, not from a religious family, not really fitting into any particular masjid. You know, there was no guaranteed job at the end of what I was doing. I remember once one of my friends visited me in Syria and um, he asked me, you know, I don't understand what you're doing. Can you explain to me? So I explained to him. He goes, I still don't get it. He goes, look, I've got a degree. I've got a master's degree. He goes, I understand. You get a degree, you get a job. 
you do a master's degree, you've got more skills, you get a better job. I do a PhD, uh, I put more time in, more effort, I get an even better job. Right, so I understand that system, but because I don't understand, you're just spending time, you're reading a book with a sheikh, what are you getting, what qualifications you get at the end of it, what are you getting at the end of it, and I said, look, um, I'm getting knowledge, and that just wouldn't register with him, that you're getting something, but it doesn't equate to any monetary value, it doesn't equate to any uh, increase in job prospects, it's just something which is nice. Whereas to me, I was like, well, I'm gaining knowledge of Allah. I'm gaining knowledge of my Creator. I'm gaining knowledge of my Prophet. I'm benefiting. I'm growing as a person. But that has no value. You know, it's like um, um, housewives. You know, a lot of housewives feel undervalued by society. They say, I'm only a housewife. Yet, what they're doing is incredibly important. They are nurturing the next generation. They are nurturing... Um, human beings who are inshallah you might be the next genius they're, they're nurturing or the next Abu Hanifa for example or next Ghazali of our time um, yet we don't value it because it's, it's not got a monetary value to it so just because society doesn't value something doesn't mean that it's not one of the most awesome things that you can do so I had to really struggle even with my own friends and trying to you know it's just a constant pressure trying to explain yourself trying to justify yourself um, but for me, it made me more determined. It made me more determined that, yeah, this was my choice. And you know something? I'm going to show everyone. I'm going to show everybody. And when they see it, they're going to see that they were in the wrong and it wasn't me. And was there ever a time when you doubted yourself? So that maybe I just need to pack it all in. Or I can't keep doing this or this is just not happening. Absolutely. There were times when I had doubts. It was times when I thought maybe everyone's right and I'm wrong. Because it was difficult, you know, I was having difficulties abroad, financial difficulties, um, people weren't helpful, you're in a different country, you feel lonely, you feel cut off, you can't see any, you know, at that time I wasn't married, who's going to marry me, I don't have a stable job, um, how am I going to settle down, what am I going to do in the future, all of those things play on you and the added pressure from you know, expectations of the community, family expectations. But I think I always used to get through it. I always used to say, Inshallah, I've come out for the sake of Allah and Allah's going to take care of me. I'm doing this for the sake of Allah. I would question my, my, my intention. What's my intention here? And if I'm sincere and I'm doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will not let me down. People might let me down. Community might let me down. My family might let me down. But my creator's never going to let me down. And so most people would have thought, you know, once you've studied for a while that you'd come back and perhaps you'd become an imam um, of a mosque. And you deliberately chose not to go down that route. Tell us a bit about what influenced your decision. I think a number of things uh, influenced my decision. Um, one thing was that I had sacrificed 10 years of my adult life. So this wasn't, you know, a lot of people become imams in their, their teenage years. They go to madrasa, they come out. But for me, it was once I was an adult. I started when I was 21. So I was already an adult. I had delayed getting married. I had delayed having a earning. So, you know, all my friends had got married. They'd got jobs. You know, they, they, they had settled. I was in my early 30s. I still had virtually no money. I had no job. Yeah, alhamdulillah, I had got married. I was very lucky. Allah was very gracious. and gave me somebody who came on the path with me. 
Um, but you know, I hadn't, I didn't have what other people, other people had. I had a number of choices when I came back. Yes, one of them was to become an imam. I didn't think I would last as an imam, to be honest, because, like I said, I'd sacrificed ten years of my life, and I was going to, you know, do something when I came back. I wasn't just going to sit back and just teach people tajweed. I was going to come back, inshallah, really do something to help my community, start tackling issues that other people were not willing to tackle, have the courage to do things that other people weren't going to do. It ultimately comes down to how much do we value um, our religion, how much do we value Islamic scholarship, how much do we value knowledge. And let's face it, it's not high in the priority list. Most of uh, the people that came to this country did not come for religious reasons, they came for economic reasons. So they're economic migrants, so as to uh, have a better way of life. Yes, alhamdulillah, they've done great work. No, no, no doubt about it. The fact that we have mosques today is a credit to them. You can't take that away from them. But I think it's now about improving that system, not not just relying on what's been happening for the last 40, 50 years. It's about making it those institutes relevant for the day and age we're living in. Uh, the reason why Imam Ghazali did what he did was because he lived at a time where knowledge was given value. So that meant he was given a decent salary to become a student of knowledge. When he became a teacher, he was paid well. He had status in society, had respect. People listened to his uh, opinions. Um, had he had to work in McDonald's as a part-time job, um, drive taxis to you know make ends meet so that he can go and study, I don't think he would have produced the results that he produced being a fully-fledged, fully-funded scholar. It's like universities now. Why do these academics produce books? Because they get paid a good job, a good uh, salary to do a full-time job. So they don't have to worry about second incomes. They're just sitting, concentrating on what they're doing. If you said to those academics, you need to write these books, but you also need to have a part-time job to make a living, then that would take their attention away from their academic studies. They wouldn't produce the same results. So it's just logic. Um, and so I think... We need to wake up and realize that if we want quality, right, then we have to invest. So the reason we have great mosques, beautiful mosques, is because we put a lot of money into them. If you're going to say, well, I want to build the mosque, but I'm only going to pay a fraction of that, you're going to end up with a pretty poor building. Same thing, if you want good quality scholarships, uh, good quality scholars, then you have to pay them what a pharmacist or, or somebody else would pay because the, the, the type of people you want to become your religious leaders, you want them to be, ha be academic, you want them to have a certain uh, level of education. Those people are going to go into other fields unless you make it attractive. And what would you say to those people that believe that Islamic education should be free? Because I'm sure you know a lot of your courses you charge and there's a fee. Um, but some people are still quite critical about that and they say, look, it should be accessible to the masses. And Islam, you should shouldn't be charged to for the sake of knowledge. Yeah, that's if the if you look at when the 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 Ummah was in a healthy state. So the times of Ghazali, the state funded education is why do we have free education at Scottish universities? Because the government funds it. If the government decides, like in England, you no know, everyone's got to pay fees, then what happens? Ultimately, some people will not be able to afford it. So. It was state. It was state um, driven. Why do we pay imams? Why do we pay imams in mosques? Most imams in mosques are paid a salary because the understanding is if we do not pay somebody a salary, no one's going to do the job. 
So why is it okay to understand that, well, that's a necessity, we have to pay an imam, otherwise he won't do a job, but anyone who else, anyone who's not an imam should do it for free. Uh, if the community was funding all these things, yeah, we would do it for free. But when the community is not funding it, things cost money. If I'm using an, uh, uh, an Apple Mac, who's going to pay for that? If I'm going to uh, hold a, a talk in a venue, who's going to pay the venue cost? Who's going to pay the printing cost? Who's going to pay all these other costs? Things cost cost something in life. Even when we could go to Quran classes or when you get um, somebody to tutor your, your child for Quran, do they do it for free or do they pay for it? They pay for it. So we pay. And if we can pay for our secular education, people can send their children to private schools. Why do they send them to private schools? Why don't you just send them to free state schools? Because, well, they're not good enough, so we want to give them the best. Well, if you want to give your children the best in secular studies and you want to give them the best Islamic education, obviously, you know, it's going to cost money because for them to produce that material, for them to have those resources, they have to invest um, money into it. It doesn't just come out of thin air. So what happens to these people? Because, I mean, is there a light switch that the standards that they expect and that they pay for in the secular world in terms of their own education or the children's education it seems to be very different to the standards they expect to do when it comes to the mosque or religious teaching them is there like almost a light switch where they stop thinking and just say, it's motivation is because ultimately and this is the the, the 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 truth that a lot of people find it hard to swallow they do not value their religion at the same level they value um, having a good career um, having secular education more than Islamic education and the proof of that I'll give you I spoke to and this is the when we did this um, whole project I uh, was for schools producing a decent curriculum for our 11 to 16 years in other words our teenagers we've invested four years to five years of resources funded somebody full-time to work on that that, that costs money it didn't come out of thin air now alhamdulillah we've got a product now um, when we looked into Islamic schools, ultimately, the you know you, you have a budget for the English department, the maths department. That's a budget they've got to spend on on on, on resources. The worst uh, or the lowest budget is for the Islamic studies in an Islamic school. Why is that? It's because ultimately, it's parent driven. Parents still want their kids to have good grades in English, maths, and the uh, Islamic studies is an add on. It's just that, okay, alhamdulillah, they get a bit of Arabic, get a bit of Islamic studies. But if they got an A in that and failed everything else, they wouldn't be happy. If they got an A in everything and failed Islamic studies, that's more acceptable. So ultimately, they want the same as everybody else. They want their kids to have good secular grades and a little bit of Islam. So the priorities is that Islam is secondary and this is primary. And until that changes, you will always find the same uh, attitude that when it comes to chemistry, or my kids got a chemistry exam, I will pay £25 an hour for a tutor to get them through the exams. Uh, or my, my kids got bad tajweed, oh, the, uh, I'll get somebody £5 an hour or £10 an hour. So we will pay more for chemistry than for Quran. And what's more, what's going to benefit a person in the hereafter? So take us to your next item, Sheikh. Next item is um, that, and this is, you know, in my early days I was looking at uh, quotes uh, from different writers and I came across this quote from Rumi the the philosopher, the poet, the scholar 
and it's a hypothetical thing. He says, God questions the soul at the gates of heaven. You are the same as when you left. You were blessed by a life full of opportunity. So where are the bruises and scars left by your journey? Uh, in other words, that, you know, um, life is not supposed to be um, easy. Life's not supposed to be full of comfort. And um, it's supposed to be difficult. You're supposed to go through the, these difficult periods in your life and come at the other side. And so, you know, when you have an injury, you, you play a sport, you get injury, you got a scar, that shows you that you played that sport. So, that, so what he's saying here is that, you know, you can't just come out life and not having done anything and be non-blemish. You have to have blemish. You have these, have these bruises and scars from life um, that you've 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 pulled through. You've got through. You've been patient and got to the other side. That's the whole purpose of of being existent. So you're going to have good times. You're going to have bad times. You're going to have challenges in your life, and these are things that you need to come through. And so, going through those years of difficulty, um, it's quotes like that that really kept me going. That you know that this is part and parcel of the package. Now, part of one of your significant roles is with Unity Family Services, mm -hmm. and you deal a lot with other people's problems and difficulties um, and very complex scenarios as well. Now, in therapy, often there's a big emphasis about ensuring there's enough support for the, per for the therapist that is helping others. So the concept of helping the helpers. I mean, how do you cope with the intense sort of emotional burden? Because the things that you have to deal with and face are the real, you know, is when things go wrong. It's not particularly glamorous or pleasant stories that people contact you about. It's when things are going wrong, lives are falling apart. I mean, when you go home, when you switch off, I mean, how do you deal with everything that you've been dealing with, I guess, throughout the day? It is certainly difficult. You do take on other people's burdens, other people's stories do play in your mind when you're sitting there on your bed thinking about the person wishing the best when you make the offer you try your best um, I think this is where my training comes in um, so sometimes it's just by reading a quote like that uh, or, or reading a hadith or reading um, something that a scholar has maybe said and it puts things in perspective there's obviously the, the thing of reading Quran um, doing the dhikr that takes um, is a, a heavy heart and ultimately um, it's not sustainable to com completely give yourself all the time. There's certain times where you need to recuperate. So Ramadan is a time where I don't deal with anyone's problems. That's my recharge period. I need to recharge my battery, my spiritual batteries. And every so often I will um, go away, leave Glasgow, and tend to uh, go back to the places where I've studied and spend a bit of time with my teachers, spend a bit of time just um, being a student again and being on, being in that environment and just recharging my batteries. Obviously there's Hajj, there's Umrah, there's other thing, times where you, you, you recharge yourself. And it might sound ironic because you surround yourself with hundreds of people per week teaching them and engaging with them. But it sounds like things might be, it's a quite a lonely experience being in the position that you're in. It is a very lonely experience because there's not many people who have experienced what you've experienced. Um, and I think, um, you know, you, you can relate to people who have had the same experiences. So when I'm with fellow scholars, from time to time, every so often, maybe once a year, I'll meet with uh, a few people that have studied with me. There's a connect. There's a, 
feeling of you can really let your hair down because you can be with people who have been through what you've been through, who are doing what you do. Um, and so you have the same difficulties, same challenges, they feel the same way. And so that support mechanism is very, very useful. And we have WhatsApp groups with other scholars. So that also with them, you know, technology that helps. But it is a lonely, it is a lonely space um, because not many people are experiencing what you're people what you're experiencing. And I think this is where you draw inspiration from the Prophet, how a lonely experience must have been for him, being a prophet by himself. Uh, there's only certain things only that he would have understood. You read the stories of other prophets, Nuh salam, how he was treated by his people, Yunus salam, in the belly of the whale. Uh, so you look at these great people, great people of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and um, it was a lonely experience for them. I think I found it more difficult in the early years because, like I said, I was just an average guy. I had the same interests as everyone else. But as soon as I started to study, I started to drift from my friends. Uh, certain things were not acceptable to me anymore. So, for example, you know, swearing. I was trying to improve myself as a person. I don't want to be in an environment where people are swearing. My friends, you know, they're just regular guys. Um, same things which are maybe uh, not appropriate. Uh, certain things which um, I'd heard from my teachers to stay away from. I was seeing that. So, what happens? You you tend to pull away. Um, because you know either you, you you're going to be like like them or they're going to become become like you and if there's a stalemate then you have to pull yourself away so it became a very lonely experience sometimes you know you family would be going out and say oh this is not a place that sheikh should be going so in other words everyone was away and you're by yourself so you, you they didn't mean it but it, you you're feeling it but i think that is part of the sacrifice you have to make i remember once my one of my teachers some of the brothers we were in Wales at the time had been working a lot and um, they were from like the Bosnian countries and they were working to send money home and he said look if if you want to work then go and work right but if you want to become a scholar this is going to this is a lifelong experience this is going to take you the rest of your life it's going to take up your money it's going to take up your health it's going to take up everything you got to give this a hundred percent so you want to make money by all means go and make money but don't become a scholar. But if you want to become a scholar, then you get ready to pay the price. And I remember at that point, I thought, this is the choice. You have to make a choice right now. If you if you can't hack it, then go for another life. But if you want to do this, this is the this is the price that you're going to have to pay. And so, alhamdulillah, you know, it's a conscious decision. So, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's lonely. But that's part and parcel of what I signed up for. And I wonder whether one of the challenges, particularly in dealing with um, the family relationships and social issues that you deal with, is that you can't just go and pick up a book and say, okay, here's the fatwa for this situation. I can imagine that a lot of the situations you face are quite unique. I mean, can you give an, is, is that accurate? And can you give us yeah. any examples of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you have spent time with great people, scholars, but they're in a different cultural context to you. They're living in a Muslim country. They're living with uh, in Muslim, uh, or predominantly majority Muslim communities from a more kind of conservative culture. Um, the kind of stuff that they're dealing with, yeah, it's challenging, but it's not a, 
um, not always the same that you're, you're facing. So you may ask them a question they've never faced it before, they're not sure themselves. Um, it's not something that you can look up a book sometimes. So sometimes you're in a situation, you hear something, and you just have to use everything that you know from your knowledge, everything you've gained, um, your understanding of the world, your secular studies, every type of knowledge that you have to try to ultimately help the person um, in front of you. And it's not always easy. So, you know, if I, uh, I remember when I was dealing with a sister who, she said my, my, um, my husband's had an affair. And again, we know it's haram. But it does happen. It's you know it's it's not um, uh, unique to just living in the West. It could happen in a Muslim country as well. So I was driving my car at the time. I said it's a bit more complicated than that. I said okay, how is it more complicated? She said well, it was the affair was with with another man. And at that point, I had to pull over and I said, can you say that again? And she said it was with another man. I was like, okay, I need to come. You need to come see me. So nothing could have prepared me for that. You know. So I'm now. It's Muslims. And um, her husband, I mean, his, his, his beard's bigger than mine, you know, a very outwardly practicing uh, Muslim, uh, somebody who's got a good, decent status in society, got a good job. I don't want to give too many details away because confidentiality issues. But, you know, she doesn't know how to deal with it. I, it was the first time I'd ever come across this. So then you're like, okay, well, how can we how can we try and resolve this and sometimes it's just the fact that you know you are there for somebody you may not have the answers but you're there to help and support and try your best and i think people just appreciate the fact that they had somebody that they could turn to and talk to uh, in confidence uh, and bounce things off because they're not quite sure if they're doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing because there was a child involved in this as well so it wasn't just a simple case of getting a divorce. It was a, somebody's child involved, and you know these are these are challenging times that we're living in. That there's no easy uh, solutions or answers to it, which is why, like I said to you, to me, you know, which day Eid is not really a priority for me anymore. I've had those discussions. I've given my opinion, and uh, I'm not willing to spend any more time on it. There are other issues which are going completely unnoticed in the community. No one is dealing with them. And um, where are these people supposed to go? Sheikh Amr, take us to the final item that you've, uh, you're have you going to take on this desert island. So uh, this is a quote where um, I can't really remember where I've read it, but um, I think it's, it's it's really helpful for for myself and also for others. It's, we decried others for their defects. But when we saw our own defects, we realized no one had any defects. Uh, so ultimately, you know, it's about self-development. It's about your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's about you trying to become the best version of you, trying to work on your character, trying to uh, continuously become a better person for yourself, for other people around you, for your community, for your family. Um, and very often we get distracted by other people we get distracted by other people's lives what's happening in other people's lives and we're focusing so much on other people and what they're doing or they're not doing and we forget that ultimately Allah is going to ask you about you he's not going to ask me about Dr. Amanullah he'll ask you about yourself he's going to ask me Amr Jamil 
I gave you a life, I gave you health, I gave you wealth, I gave you X amount of years on the, on the earth. Uh, I asked you to worship me, what did you do? What's your response going to be? He's not going to ask me about my mum, my dad, he's going to ask me about me. So if we spend all our time focusing on other people and forget ourselves, we're actually just deluding uh, ourselves and it's a, it's a trick of shaitan. So I love this quote because it says that if you become busied uh, by yourself, it makes you oblivious to other people's faults. And if we were all just concentrating on ourselves, we wouldn't have time to be looking at the faults of other people. We'd be too busy trying to fill the holes in ourselves. And we, when you start looking inside, you're going to realize there's so much room for improvement. Uh, and this is the way of the pious predecessors. They were more, more um, worried about themselves and sorting themselves out than going around criticizing other people. So I think um this i read it actually quite early on in my in my journey but it was all about you know ultimately i have to do the best i can for myself i have to build this relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala i will stand in front of him one day there'll be nobody between me and him he will hold me to account for every single breath i've had on this earth and what i did with it and what am i going to answer him and which is something that really drives me to push myself as much as possible to get as much done in this life so that I can stand with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when he says what did you do I can say yeah Allah I tried I tried my best I did this I did that I did that I did that I know it wasn't good enough but I did it for your sake uh, in the hope that something that I've done with my life um, you were happy with and it, you know you're so happy with it that it will overlook all my other defects and all my feelings and you envelop me in your 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 mercy and give me uh, pardon and and enter me into the the garden. Now one can only imagine how busy you are. And we've talked a lot about, I guess, the different projects and issues that you you deal with all the time. Um, but you must find some time to relax and have a laugh. I mean, what do you do? Tell us a bit about when you need that downtime. What do you do? I like playing with my kids. So I've got twins, which are four and a half, and. Uh, little toddler who's a year and a half I just like messing about with them and sometimes we just you know ask them questions and uh, wrestle with them I just like spending time with uh, with my family um, just um, noising up my nieces and nephews you know whether it's on whatsapp or just just having a, a bit of a laugh with with my family we're quite a um, sarcastic family we were quite high in sarcasm so we like just having little digs at each other, but it's all in good, it's all in good spirit. So um, I think a lot of it's just, just family time. A lot of it's just family time. As we send you to the desert island, uh, you'll be alone. How do you think you'll cope with the solitude on this island? Um, I think you're only alone if you uh, forget that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you. If you read the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, he is with you wherever you are. We are closer to you than your jugular, or closer to him than your jugular vein. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always been there before you were created, when you were created. Um, he's been, you, been there with you from the, your, your earliest days in this earth. He's with you now and he'll ultimately always be with you. And if you understand that, if you feel that Allah is with you, then you're never alone. And on this desert island, you can take another book apart from the Quran along with you. What would you take? 
Uh, I would take the Hikam of Imam Ibn Atayillah, which is a book of wisdoms, about over 200 wisdoms. And the reason I would take that book is because it ultimately talks about your relationship with God. And you know, like creed is, you have to believe in this about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can't believe in this. It's the theoretical skeleton of belief. But the hikam is almost like the practical creed, like the idea of tawheed. How do you actualize that tawheed and feel it in your heart and live it and breathe it? This book is it, it really um, brings that out. It's, it shows you how to have that ultimate, deep, intimate relationship with God. And you can take a luxury item along with you. What, what, what would that be? I think throughout my studies, um, when I went abroad, someone come, came to visit me, I'd always ask for a case of iron brew. So I think this something that they put in that um, that drink, which is <laughs> highly addictive. Um, no matter how much you uh, stay off fizzy drinks, as soon as you have that, especially when you have a chippy, uh, it's you know, iron brew with some ice. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> so Sheikh Amr, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your desert island gems. May Allah support you in all the work that you're doing give you strength and barakah and give you the real um, the wisdom and the, and the steadfastness to continue to benefit the community, not just in Scotland, but across the world. So Jazakallah Khair. Assalamu Alaikum. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. 